you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Thanks to the 2007 novel by Dan Simmons and the recent television series based on it, the story of the ill-fated Franklin expedition among the Arctic waters of Canada's far north and of the fates which befell the British vessels Terror and Erebus, never a particularly little documented one, has come back into the minds of many. Both ships have since been found. But while the initial searches were being conducted in the late 1840s and early 1850s, a ship on a transatlantic voyage, and at the time off the coast of Newfoundland, entered the story in an unexpected way. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 64, The Ships on the Ice. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Ever since Christopher Columbus set sail from Europe, seeking a passage to India and discovering that an entire continent was in the way, the undeterred crowns of Europe kept right on looking for the proper route. For a long time, it was believed that if one sailed around the northeastern coast of America, traversing what we now know as the Labrador Sea and passing into the Hudson Strait, one would enter another passage called the Strait of Anian. This semi-mythical strait was believed to essentially bypass much of America, eventually emerging on the Pacific coast and passing south to empty into the Sea of Cortez. I'm sure you've seen how on old maps, California is often depicted as being an island. The Strait of Anian is the reason. The 18th century explorer Captain James Cook reported that the icebergs of the North Atlantic contained freshwater, not seawater. This was thought to support the the notion of a Northwest Passage, as the British came to refer to the mythical strait. Although actually it doesn't, because a strait is still saltwater, so, you know. But while mapping and exploration had progressed to a point where California was no longer thought of as an island, and it was now known that a channel of water didn't cut across northern Canada, it was still believed that a ship could traverse through clear waters and eventually emerge into the Pacific. There were many attempts to navigate the northern waters to do so. One such attempt came in May of 1845, when an expedition led by Sir John Franklin departed England. The expeditionary forces consisted of two ships, the HMS Terror, captained by Francis Crozier, and the HMS Erebus, captained by James Fitzjames. The Terror was no stranger to Arctic exploration, and both ships, took part in the 1841 Ross expedition to Antarctica. So in 1845, they were dispatched to the waters north of Canada to attempt to look for the Northwest Passage. 
The last definitive sighting of the two vessels came in August of 1845, when some whaling vessels saw them sailing in Baffin Bay. By 1847, though, the ships had not yet returned to England. Concerned about her husband, Lady Jane Franklin urged the Admiralty to launch a search for him. They responded by launching no less than three searches. One party was led by John Richardson and John Ray, and moved northward along the Mackenzie River to the Arctic shores. Another was led by James Ross, who searched the northern island region approaching from the Atlantic. Henry Kellett, on the other hand, approached from the Pacific side. By 1850, 11 more ships, both British and American, had joined the search. It was during these latter searches that a campsite on Beachy Island was discovered, as well as the bodies of three of the men. It was discovered that all three had died of a combination of tuberculosis and lead poisoning. The lead poisoning was traditionally thought of as a byproduct of improperly canned food, as a rushed order caused most of the cans to be improperly soldered, but there is a fairly convincing case to be made for the poisoning to have resulted from the machinery used to rapidly melt snow for drinking water. One of the other ships sent out in 1850, the HMS Investigator, became icebound. In 1853, by which time they had been icebound for two years, the crew abandoned the investigator and made their way across the ice to Melville Island, where they met up with the HMS Resolute in 1854. That ship was part of another expedition sent to the Northern Islands that year, led by Sir Henry Belcher. Belcher had set out with five ships, the Intrepid, the Assistance, the Resolute, the Pioneer, and the North Star. The North Star, however, was kept moored off Beachy Island. The Belcher expedition was a monumental blunder, however. The Resolute and Intrepid were marooned in ice, and the crews abandoned ship. They made their way 987 miles, or 1,589 kilometers, east to Beachy Island where the North Star was waiting. When there, Sir Henry arrived from the north, and it was learned that the assistance and the Pioneer had also been abandoned. The entire crew returned to England, where Henry Belcher was court-martialed by the Admiralty for ordering four ships abandoned. Although he was acquitted, his naval career was over. As a fun trivia fact, the large wooden desk we see in the Oval Office whenever the President's on television is made from wood salvaged from the Resolute. Alone of the Belcher ships, it had been discovered in September 1855 by an American whaling vessel named the George Henry. The ship was returned to England, and in 1880, it was decommissioned and dismantled. The wood of the ship was used to make several desks, and one of these was gifted to then-President Rutherford B. Hayes by Queen Victoria. The desk was put into storage for years, but when John F. Kennedy was president, he retrieved the desk, and it has been in the Oval Office ever since. Also in 1854, on another expedition in the northern regions, John Ray heard from an Inuit man near Kugarok that a group of 35 or 40 white men had died of starvation near the mouth of the Black of the Back River. He also heard rumors that the men had resorted to cannibalism. Traveling to the site of their camp, he found numerous artifacts which were determined to have come from the terror in the Erebus. According to the Inuit, one of the ships had run aground and one had sunk in deep water. The stories also indicate it that when the Inuit had boarded the ship, they found the, they found the, quote, body of a large white man with big teeth. 
They said, however, that the body was so large that five men could not lift it. So either it was completely frozen, or, as some suggest it, it was actually a large wooden figurehead mistaken for an actual man by the natives. It has been noted that if it were a figurehead, then the ship was not either of the Franklin ships, since neither of those had a figurehead. The possibility would exist that it could have been the missing investigator. The next year, James Anderson and James Stewart, searching around the same place, heard the same rumors of starvation and cannibalism, and found a piece of wood bearing the name Erebus. Following this, the British government formally declared the crews of the ships deceased on March 31, 1854. Lady Jane Franklin privately contracted another expedition, led by Francis McClinock, and in 1859 they discovered a cairn on King William Island which contained a piece of paper containing scrawled messages, which indicated that on April 22, 1848, Her Majesty's ships Terror and Erebus were deserted, five leagues north-northwest of this, having been beset since 12 September 1846. The officers and crews consisting of 105 souls under the command of Captain F.R.M. Crozier landed here. Sir John Franklin died on the 11th June 1847, and the total loss by deaths in the expedition has been to this date 9 officers and 15 men. Start on tomorrow, 26th, for Beck's Fish River. In hindsight, that destination also backed up the stories John Ray had heard from the Inuit, which had at the time been questioned by many, because Back's Fish River is basically an old name used for the Back River. The same expedition also found the skeleton of a man believed to be Thomas Armitage, a gunroom steward on board the Terror. In 1860 and 1869, explorer Charles Francis Hall found more artifacts on King William Island, as well as another skeleton which was found to be that of Lieutenant H.T.D. Levisconte, who had been serving on the Erebus. But now we'll backtrack to 1851, and a time immediately in the wake of the discovery of the three graves on Beachy Island, for the story that is the topic of this episode. On May 28th of that year, the Limerick Chronicle of Ireland published a letter describing events which had taken place earlier that month. The events were related by an Irishman, who had been sailing on the HMS Renovation, a ship which had departed Limerick bound for Quebec, arriving there on May 9th. Although published in that newspaper anonymously, the man's name was eventually revealed as John S. Lynch. He wrote from Prescott, Ontario, The icebergs we met with were frightful in size, as the basis of some of them would cover three times over the area of Limerick. And I do not at all exaggerate when I say that the steeple of the cathedral would have appeared but a small pinnacle, and a dark one, compared to the lofty and gorgeously tinted spires that were on some of them. And more to be regretted it is, that we met, or rather saw at a distance, one with two ships on it, which I am, sure al- which I am almost sure belonged to Franklin's exploring squadron, as from the latitude and longitude we met them in, they were drifting from the direction of Davis's Straits. Was there but a single one, it might have been a deserted whaler. But two so near each other, they must have been consorts. They were to windward of us, and a heavy sea running at the time, with thick weather coming on, we could not board them.
Hello friends, my name is Michael Patrick and I'm the host of the Monsters and Friends podcast. Each week, my Bigfoot friend Barry and I fire up our trusty Winnebago and we travel the United States in search of cryptids, legends, and lore. However, we're not looking for any old cryptid, legend, and lore. We want to introduce you to some of the monsters of the world that don't get the same spotlight as Barry's cousin Bigfoot. Did you know that in Ireland, there's an 8-foot murderous otter? Or in the Mongolian desert, there's a worm that can kill you. Instantly. Come with Barry and I each and every week as we travel the United States in search of interesting monsters and stories. Once we find them, we usually find a good spot to camp, sit around the campfire, sip on warm cider, and chat about life, or sometimes butterflies. We'd love for you to join us each and every week and learn about the amazing things and stories that we discover. You can find the Monsters and Friends podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll chat again real soon. Completely independently, the London Times published a letter from James Silk, a crewman on the renovation, almost a year later on May 8, 1852. This letter was written in delightfully mangled English which has to be seen to be believed, but nonetheless, it confirmed the allegations made by the Lynch letter. On the fourteenth day in the morning, we saw a very large iceberg to windward of us, and at twelve o'clock we saw as many as six icebergs. Upon one of the very large bergs, in which we see there was two large ships on them, one laying upon her broad broadside, and the other were laying as comfortable as if she were in the dock fast to her moorings. The weather was very fine, and the water very smooth, but the captain being laid up at the time, it was not reported to him until eight o'clock, and we out of sight of them, so, my dear friends, I cannot tell you whether there was any living souls there or not. I cannot tell you anything more about them now. Captain Edward Coward of the renovation had likewise been aware of the sighting of the beach ships, and upon arrival in Quebec, he had mentioned them to a Captain Story, as well as to a man named George Klug. Captain Story, in turn, spoke to a naval officer named James Shore, who wrote to Captain William A.B. Hamilton, the then Secretary of the Admiralty. Internal Admiralty communications reveal that, Though they did take note of the story of the ships seen by the renovation, they also took the opportunity to berate Shore for not properly following the chain of command. I am commanded by my Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty to transmit to you the enclosed letter from Mr. James M. Shore, second master of Her Majesty's ship Samson, respecting two three-masted ships having been seen drifting with an iceberg, and to signify their direction to you to route to forward the same to Captain Jones of the Samson, desiring that officer, first, to inform Mr. Shore that my lords would have expected that he knew enough of the rules of the service not to address a letter to the Admiralty excepting through his commanding officer. Soon after this, the Admiralty launched an investigation, and on June 22, 1852, a report was compiled by Sir R. H. Eng Inglis and published under the unwieldy name of 
Vessels in the North Atlantic, copies of communications between the Admiralty and many public authorities at home and abroad, in reference to certain vessels observed on an iceberg in the North Atlantic in 1851, and supposed to have been abandoned. The Admiralty had ordered Cap Commander H.C. Hawkins to track down Captain Story, quote, if there be such a person. Hawkins tracked him down in Tynemouth and confirmed the tale. Edward Coward's wife, living in Shields, also told Hawkins that she had also been told about the ships by her husband. Also spoken to, albeit by Captain Erasmus Omini of the Coast Guard, was Robert Simpson, the first mate of the renovation, now assigned to a ship called the British Queen. Simpson had initially sighted the beached vessels. A lengthy communication from Simpson sums up the entire affair. The name of Joseph Lynch is not a mistake on my part, by the way. On the 6th of April, 1851, we sailed from Limerick for Quebec and Ballast, and one cabin pa passenger, a very respectable young man named Mr. Joseph Lynch. We experienced the most beautiful run at the rate of 9, 10, and 11 knots per hour as far as the Gulf of St. Lawrence, nothing remarkable occurring until about the 18th or 19th, when we were surrounded by numerous gigantic icebergs. And I think it was on or about the 20th, at 6 a.m., my watch on deck, I discovered on the starboard bow a large iceberg with two ships on it, as did the men that were in my watch. I immediately went below and informed Captain Coward, who being very ill at the time, did not notice at first what I said. I again repeated the circumstance and asked him what he intended to do, but he only groaned out, never mind, or something to that effect. I was anxious to get up on deck again, but before I went up, called Mr. Lynch, who immediately jumped up and looked at the vessels a few minutes, when he went below again and dressed himself, the weather being at the time excessively cold. Mr. Lynch, after putting on his clothes, came on deck, where he and I, in our turns, stood watching the two ships for about three quarters of an hour, when we lost sight of them. The largest one was lying on her beam ends, with her head to the eastward, and nothing standing but her three lower masts and bowsprit. The smaller one, which was nearly upright, with her head to the southward, with her three masts, top masts on end, and top sail and lower yards across, and to all appearances, having been properly stripped and abandoned. Several explanations were offered as to what could have been seen by the crew of the renovation. A whaler by the name of Captain William Penny gave his opinion that it was impossible for an iceberg of the size reported to even exist as far south as Newfoundland. Even if it did, he argued, the ships were probably what was known popularly as country ships, mere simulacra and ice formations that simply looked like ships. One, offered on April 15, 1852, in an article appearing in the London Times, was more dismissive. It is more than probable that the vision seen by those on board the renovation may have been the reflection of that vessel from two different surfaces of the iceberg to which it is said they were attached, as, if the objects had been real ships, some other vessels would have seen them on a coast so much frequented as Newfoundland. Pretty much the same opinion was also put forth by provincial authorities in Newfoundland. Both of these, however, overlook that the ships were seen by more than one vessel. Captain Robert Kerr wrote the Admiralty from Sligo on May 5, 1852, saying that when he was last in New York, he had heard that a Captain Edward Lorenz of the German ship Dr. Kneipp had also seen ships on an iceberg at approximately the position reported by the renovation. 
This sighting, oddly, seems to have not really been looked into at all. A communication from the Admiralty reproduced in Inglis's report reveals that because the ships were seen by only two vessels, at least the author of that letter doubted whether there were ever ships in the first place. As Joe O'Farrell write, writes in the search for Her Majesty's ships Erebus and Terror, in the myriad of books written about the Franklin mystery, very few make any reference to this Admiralty inquiry and the story of the ships in the ice. And, in the case of those few which do, it is either stated or implied, or the reader is forced to infer, that the Admiralty reached the conclusion that there was no substance to the story of the ships in the ice. This is patently untrue. The Admiralty reached no such conclusion. In fact, they reached none. The conclusion, as implied, was never definitively reached. James Lynch, for his part, believed that the ships were the Terror and the Erebus. Crucially, however, neither of the other two letters confirming the event make the same assumption as to their identity. Rupert T. Gold, writing of the event, gives several accounts of ships that did indeed manage to drift quite a distance among the islands of northern Canada. One of these was the Terror itself, which in March of 1837, while captained by George Back, ran aground onto ice and drifted 200 miles east through the Hudson Strait. Another was Sir James Ross's ship during the 1847 search effort, which drifted 300 miles eastward through the Barrow Strait and emerged into the Davis Strait. An American ship, the USS Advance, which had aided in the 1850 search effort, was again icebound and drifted several hundred miles through the Wellington Channel, through the Barrow Strait, and then into Baffin Bay. Most impressive of all these, though, was the drift of the previously mentioned HMS Resolute. Abandoned in the waters off of Bathurst Island, it had drifted nearly a thousand miles before it was found by the George Henry off the east coast of Baffin Island in 1855. In the O'Farrell article quoted above, he agrees with Gould, citing the observations of Sir Alan Young in 1875. Coming down Franklin Strait, just north of where the Franklin expedition abandoned their ships, he was blocked by ice drifting north. If there was a northerly current in this strait, as is suggested by this account, he theorizes that the Terror and the Erebus could have drifted out to the position where the renovation had seen the ships on the ice. But, of course, in today's world, the Franklin mystery, as it was called at one time, is really much, much less of a mystery than it had been. Although the fates of many of the crew are still unknown, were the 35 or 40 who died at Back River mentioned in the Inuit tales the last of the crew members or merely a small group of them? Both ships have now been discovered. The Erebus was found on September 2nd, 2014, in shallow waters just west of the Adelaide Peninsula, apparently having drifted south from where the ships were abandoned. The Terror was found just over two years later, on September 12, 2016, in the waters of Terror Bay on the south coast of King William Island. Terror Bay had been named after the last ship, but, ironically, before it was known that the wreckage of that very ship lay within it. Both ships have now been declared part of the wrecks of the HMS Erebus and HMS Terror National Historic Site. Most sources I consulted for this precede the discovery of the ships, and therefore some of the conclusions and theories that existed as to the matter of whether those ships on the ice were, in fact, the Terror and the Erebus, take on a very different light now that we know definitively where those ships are. 
That's very much in the immediate area of where the ships were initially abandoned, according to the paper found in the cairn on King William Island. So with the location of the wrecks taken into account, YY agreed that yes, it would have been possible for those two ships to have drifted out to Newfoundland where they were seen, where the ships on the ice were seen, they have to have at some point then drifted back to where they originated. And that's pretty unlikely, if not straight out impossible. So it's apparent that the ships, if they indeed existed, were not the Terror and the Erebus. I'm wondering whether the idea of an illusion as proposed in the London Times article is that far off the mark. While the idea of a reflection of the renovation, as that article suggests, is pretty ludicrous in my opinion, there's the pretty common type of mirage called a Feta Morgana, which is produced by the bending of light through air of different temperatures. One of the links I put in the show description has several images of Feta Morgana, some of which could look similar to a three-masted sailing ship. Maybe. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark. That's F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.